Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. So the book of Acts is what we've been in. Uh, We wrap up our series today, and it's the story of the unstoppable spread of the church. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I will build my what? Does anybody remember this? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. The church, we said, is not a building. The church is a movement of God. It's the assembly. It's the people. And Jesus said he'd build his his church, and it's all centered upon the incredible message of something that actually happened, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that there were hundreds and hundreds of witnesses who saw him dead, but then alive. And those witnesses went out, and they began to share the message of Jesus, giving people the opportunity to respond to the good news that Jesus saves. Now, the book of Acts is full of people's responses to the gospel. If you haven't yet read through it, through this series, I encourage you, it's not too late. You can uh, pick up the book of Acts. It's an incredible, incredible story of the early church. I'd encourage you to do that. Maybe make that your summer reading. We wrap up today looking at three people, three final responses to the message of Jesus. We're going to look at Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. Okay, that's three names. We're going to get those in our head here to, so we don't want you to get confused today. So let's say those together so we just kind of hear it. So first of all, Felix. Everybody say Felix. Felix. Festus. Festus. Agrippa. Agrippa. One more time. Okay, good. How many names? What's their names? Okay, good. You got it. We're ready to, we're ready to roll on this. Their responses to the good news from God are so similar to people's responses to the gospel today. They're similar to people's responses for the last 2,000 years. And we might see in their responses some of our response to the gospel as well. Let me set the stage for you. Paul had spent about a decade planting churches throughout Asia Minor and in modern-day Turkey and Greece. Wherever Paul went, he was usually rejected by his Jewish brothers and sisters because he taught that the Messiah that God promised in what are our Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah that God promised, he taught that it was Jesus, that he was the Messiah, the Savior that God would send the world. And they didn't like that message. So Paul was oftentimes put in prison. He was beat with rods. He was whipped. He was oftentimes kicked out of cities. Both Gentiles and Jews, meaning Jews and non-Jews, all persecuted him for his faith and for his message of the gospel. So Paul decides, after spending all that time in in, in planting churches, he says, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to share my church planting adventures and what God has been doing. I'm going to share that with my Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. Again, because controversy tended to follow Paul, a riot ended ended up stirring against him there in Jerusalem. And Paul ends up getting beat again. But Acts chapter 21, 22, and 23 kind of tells us this whole journey and this whole story. He ends up getting saved by the Roman leaders. They discovered that there are 40 Jewish people who were so bent on on destroying Paul that they made a vow that we will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. 
Those 40 people had enough influence that that's going to sway the whole city, and there's going to be even more riots, and the, Jew, and the Roman leaders didn't want instability wherever they ruled. And so the Romans decide we need to get Paul out of this city because if we don't get him out of here tonight, this is going to go really, really bad. So in the middle of the night, they slip Paul out of the city in order to protect him. It took 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 20 spearmen who went out to to take him and protect him, which is just mind-boggling to think that that many people were needed, and that's how serious the situation was. They took him up the north coast to the city of Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the Roman Empire in that region, in Judea or in the land of Israel. Into our story enters Marcus Antonius Felix. Everybody say Felix. 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 So now we have Felix. Who's Felix? Felix is the Roman governor of this region, of the Judean or Israeli region. And so he's now part of our story. Now what takes place next? We first of all need to know Felix is a person who his life was really, in many respects, a real success story. He was born a slave. He was later freed. He ended up rising in the ranks within the Roman, uh, um, Jude, uh, the Roman world, if you will, with Roman officials, getting to the point where he was the governor. It was a huge deal, but he had a problem. Felix's extravagance, his wastefulness, and his willingness to take bribes led to a huge increase of crime throughout that region of Judea. He really was an incompetent leader. And and he, he because of his leadership style, it brought tremendous instability into the land of Israel. Again, Romans don't like there to be instability, or they want peace in their, uh, in their empire, in their kingdom. So Paul has been sent up from Jerusalem, and now he's in Caesarea, and now he goes before Governor Felix. What does Paul do? Well, he does what he always does. He shares his testimony. He shares how Jesus changed his life. He never wastes an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And he finished that little uh, conversation with Felix, and he said, here's the reason I'm here. Now, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, physically go to Acts 24. We're going to be in Acts 24, 25, 26. We're just going to kind of look at a bunch of verses. Or you can go on your phone to the YouVersion Bible app. Acts 24. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. Paul tells Felix, here's the reason I'm here. That this whole thing is going on. It's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. He knows we're talking about Jesus here. And that's why. It's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, Felix, being Roman governor, he doesn't really fully understand the Jewish culture, and he thinks this is a whole seemingly Jewish issue. So he doesn't make a decision right there about Paul and his future. Fast forward a couple verses, verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Okay, so there we get some interesting information. Years earlier, when Felix uh, uh, became governor, when he first met Drusilla, he saw her and he thought, oh my goodness, I like this person. I want her to be my wife. And so he orchestrated this whole circumstance and situation where eventually she, um, she divorced her husband and became the wife of Felix. So you have this Jewish person marrying a Gentile, which of course was against God's laws and God's commands. Verse 24. So he sent for Paul. 
after he put, sent him away, but now he brings him back. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So Felix, he has a Jewish wife, and, and you have this guy before him, and he's intrigued just enough to want to hear a little bit more. He wanted to hear what Paul had to say. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If you had the opportunity to stand before an official, governor, senator, congressperson, uh, president, maybe in front of a board, in front of a council, whatever the case may be, if you had the opportunity to stand before somebody in authority, what would you say? And by the way, what would you not say? Okay, like what would you do? What would you avoid talking about? Paul, he spoke about faith in Jesus, verse 25. And Paul also talked about righteousness, which is right conduct, which is, which is related to God and his holiness. He talked about doing the right thing, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, why would he talk about those? Well, because before him, this governor, Felix, and his uh, Gentile and his Jewish wife, they were both spiritually lost. And they were both wrapped up and caught up in sin. And so they needed to understand God's holy standard, righteousness, self-control. And they needed to understand the judgment of God as it pertains to those who fall short of God's holy standard. In other words, for you and I to repent, for somebody to repent, we have to know what we're repenting from. Does that make sense? You and I have to understand and know, well, if God's called me to turn to him and repent, what am I turning from? See, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news only when you understand how bad the bad news truly is. You see, the gospel, the message that Jesus saved, it's so incredible. Why is that so incredible? Because scripture makes it clear all of us have fallen short of God's holy standard. None of us is righteous, not one of us. And what we've earned, what we deserve, the Bible says, a result of our falling short of God's holiness and his standard and who he is, the Bible says we've earned eternal death, eternal separation from the Father. It doesn't get any worse than that. And when you and I begin to understand, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner, I've messed up, I can't measure up to God, and, and I have to be punished for that as a result, I deserve eternal death. Man, is there a way I can get out of that? Right? Isn't there all of a sudden you say, oh my goodness, that is so awful. What, do I have a solution to this? By the way, you do. And Paul said his name is Jesus Christ. That he's the one who comes and sets us free from sin and death. He forgives us of our sins. And we have the offer, the gift of eternal life once our sins are forgiven. We deserve separation from God. But through, G through Jesus Christ... And his death on the cross, we have the opportunity to be united with God for all of eternity. It's called the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting when you kind of look at our, the, the landscape of our country today. We live in a country where I think most of us would say, by and large, we as a country reject moral absolutes. Now, some are follow God's word, but as a country collectively, we reject moral absolutes. In other words, righteousness, what's righteousness? Right living, right conduct. Right living, right conduct in our culture is relative. What's right for you may not be right for them. 
Just look at what's happening, like just practically speaking right now. We're at stores now because everybody has a different standard of what they think is right. People now think it's right, it's okay to walk into a store and to take something that is not theirs and take it for their own and not stop at the cash register to pay for it. And so the robbery and the thieving that's happening in our stores across our country, California passed a law, you can steal $1,000 and, and you won't be, you know, nothing's going to happen to you. So people are like, okay, cool. Why wouldn't I walk in there? So have you gone into a store and all you wanted was some Advil, but you had to get somebody because they had to unlock it from the cabinet? And it's crazy, but that's what's happening now. And if you haven't seen it right here in the stores you shop at, it's coming. It's coming across the country. Why? Because righteousness is relative. What's right for you may not be right for me. And so Paul's preaching that to him and telling him, no, 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 our righteousness is based on God's holy standard. Self-control, he talked about that. How's that doing in our culture today? The idea of impending judgment, well, that doesn't resonate with people. That's impending, who's judging us and when's that even happening? And so people disregard that. But Paul spoke about that. He spoke truth. Unless you know you need to be saved and what you need to be saved from, the message of God, the truth of God, righteousness, self-control, the judgment to come, that's just going to seem irrelevant to you. Felix, there was enough happening in him as Paul's sharing this, verse 25, Acts 24, verse 25. Felix was afraid and he said, well, that's enough for now. You can leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. See, he's terrified. Why? He knows. He knows he's not right with God. But it doesn't, for him, lead to a humble faith. His response to the gospel, again, the book of Acts is full of people's responses to the good news of Jesus. He decides, you know what? I'll determine to what extent I will consider this matter in the future. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. And my question to you is, how often do we say that to the Lord? How often do you say that to the Lord? See, you know God's speaking to you. Whether it's through a sermon, whether it's through a podcast you're living to, uh, listening to, whether you're reading God's word, whether it's a friend or a family member or a child, whatever the case may be, God is speaking to you. You know he's speaking to you. And yet there's times when God speaks to you and the reality is the message inconvenient to your life right now, isn't it? And you hear that message. And how often do we say, you know what, I'll wait till I'm ready to think about that. I'll wait, I'll hold off. I know what God's word says, but it's not suitable for me right now. it's, It's not conducive to my lifestyle and the choices that I'm making right now. When I find it convenient, then I'll deal with this God thing. How often do you find yourself saying that? God's, you're like, hey, I come to church. I I come to church regularly, and I listen to the messages, and most of them I'm good with. But there's some, I don't like what he said, and so I'll just kind of set that aside. I'll come back next week, and I'll step back in. How often does that happen? I don't agree with God's word. It's not convenient. And so I ask you, do you only respond to God's word when it's convenient and conducive to your life and lifestyle and your choices? that you're already making? Or do you say yes to God's will and God's way 
each and every day, even when it's inconvenient. Where do you stand with God? This back and forth with Paul and Felix goes on for two years. Two years, Paul's sitting in prison. Two years, he shares the gospel, the good news about Jesus with this Roman governor, this ruler, and his wife. Two years, neither of them submit or surrender to the Lord. Felix's story and his response is a reminder to you and I to not put off addressing our eternity. Listen, don't put off getting right with God. Don't walk away from being in step and walking in step with the Spirit today. Don't walk away from that and say, I'll get to it tomorrow. Don't delay. Be righteous. Be holy today. That's what God's called you to. And for those of you who are here who are not yet saved, at the end of the message, we're going to give you an opportunity to say yes to God and join the family of God and have your sins forgiven. Well, because of Felix's inability to govern, Nero decides to send a new governor to the region to take over because he's just not doing a very good job. So uh, Felix is out, in steps Porcius Festus. Everybody say Festus. Festus. Not Festivus, Festus. His primary objective, well, of course we know what his primary objective is. He needs to bring peace and stability into this region that has the the winds of insurrection and the winds of revolution that are blowing through the air because of this incompetent leader. No sooner had Festivus changed the paintings on the wall and swapped out the carpets of the governor's mansion that he finds out he's got this whole issue with this Paul guy in his jail. And he's finding out, like, oh my goodness, Paul's situation's getting worse. And so Paul is brought in before the new governor, Festus. Acts chapter 25, let's jump ahead a chapter. Verse 7. The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. These are the ones, for two years they've wanted Paul dead. I mean, they're holding on to this. This is a big deal to them. And for those 40, I'm assuming they're dead because they haven't eaten and ate or drank for two years, right? But we don't know what happens to them. They brought many serious charges against Paul, but they couldn't prove them. So Paul says to Festus in verse 8, Festus, I've done nothing wrong, not against the Jewish law, not against the temple, and not even against Caesar or the Roman Empire. But remember, Festus has been assigned by Nero to come to this region to bring peace and stability. So he thinks to himself, you know, I have these Jewish leaders from their capital city of Jerusalem before me. If I can appease them, maybe this whole thing kind of goes away and I can kick off my governorship, you know, leading with peace. And so he says to Paul, hey, Paul, how about this? I'll release you to these Jewish leaders where you can go with them and go back to Jerusalem and you can do a trial with them and you guys can deal with it all. What do you think Paul's response is to that? You think he's on board for that? What do they want to do to him? They want to kill him. So Paul realizes, I'm not going to get, that's not going to work for me. I'm not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. So he says, Acts 25 verse 11, I appeal to Caesar. 
Paul was Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen, which meant anybody who was a Roman citizen, if you're in the, kind of use some of our language here in the United States, if you're in one of the lower courts, so to speak, and it's not going well for you and and it's going sideways, you can appeal to the Supreme Court, so to speak, if you have standing, if you've been following the news this week. And so Paul, as a Roman citizen, he has standing. So he can bypass the lower court, go up to the Supreme Court, if you will. Who is the Supreme Court? Caesar himself. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. At this point in the story enters in our third character. Anybody remember our third guy? Agrippa, right? King Herod Agrippa II. He's the last in the line of the Herods of, you know, kind of the Jewish kings in the region. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Does that ring a bell? Herod the Great built the temple. Herod the Great was around when Jesus was born. Herod the Great, right, what did he do? He didn't want Jesus to be king, and so what did he do? He wanted Jesus killed, so he had all the infants in Bethlehem killed. That's his great-grandfather. Herod Agrippa II, who's who's the person in our story, his granduncle was Herod Antipas. Who's that? Herod Antipas was part of the sham trial along with uh, Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem that ended up sending Jesus to his death. Herod Agrippa II's father was Herod Agrippa the what? The first, right? Thank you. Just make sure you're paying attention. He murdered the apostle James and he put Peter in jail. And so Herod Agrippa II comes from a long line of killers. He's the king, if you will, of this north region of Galilee. He's a loyal friend of Rome. And so he and his, his uh, sister Bernice, they'd travel to, uh, from Galilee area over to the coast to Caesarea to pay their respects to the new governor Festus. It makes sense. Hey, I'm the king of this area, but Rome's really in charge, and I want to make sure I'm good with the governor. And so he goes to see him. He gets there, and Festus asks King Agrippa to help him with the whole Paul situation. Why? Because he was Jewish, and he understood this whole Jewish thing a lot better than Festus. Festus is Roman. He doesn't understand this. He thinks this is a Jewish conversation. I want you to listen, and we're going to read this together, Acts chapter 25. I want you to listen as King Agrippa, or excuse me, as Festus uh, talks about Agrippa and, and, and how, what he says about this whole issue of Paul. And the case against Paul. And I want you to notice how he presents this to Agrippa and what his statement or response is, how similar it is to people today. Here it is, Acts 25, verse 14. So uh, he said, this is uh, Festus, the new governor, says, hey, Agrippa, there's a man here whom Felix, the, the previous knucklehead, he left as a prisoner. In other words, Paul, he's still in my jail and I kind of wanted a clean slate, verse 18. When Paul's accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes that I actually thought they would, as I expected, verse 19. Instead, they had some points of dispute with Paul about their own religion, and here it is, and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive. Did you catch it? A dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. And then Festus said this, verse 20. He says to Agrippa, I'm at a loss at how to investigate such matters. In other words, Roman law doesn't cover resurrections. 
Insurrections? Oh, yeah, I know what to do with that. I can put that down. I'm good with that. But resurrections, Roman law doesn't cover it. I don't have any frame of reference in our law or even in my own paradigm. The response of Festus rings throughout the centuries. I was at a loss at how to investigate such matters. Every modern-day Festus stumbles over the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know what to do with that. Oh, if someone was dead and now they're alive, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say to that? I'm at a loss. King Agrippa, he understands the Jewish law. King Agrippa, he knows the story of Jesus because Jesus was around in his region. And so he says, Acts 25, verse 22, you know what? I would like to hear this man, Paul, myself. I'm interested. I'm curious. Festus sounds, says, sounds great. My schedule's open tomorrow. Let's bring him in. By the way, Acts chapter 9 says something very interesting. When Paul got saved, we discover that Paul, it tells us that Paul would stand before governors and kings. Here it is. So we're in Acts chapter 26, and in verses 2 through 23, Paul's before Felix, uh, excuse me, Festus. He's before King Agrippa and this entire court of officials. He lays out his testimony once again. He lays out his conversion story and his defense of the gospel. He proclaims the power of the resurrection once again. And then in verse 8, Acts chapter 26, he says this. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? That was the question everybody then and now has to deal with. Everybody. If God is God, why in the world? If you believe God is all, all everything, all powerful, omnipotent, omni everything, if you believe he's truly God, then how does it surprise you that this all powerful God could raise somebody from the dead? If he's truly God, that's nothing for him. It's a question we all have to deal with ourselves, even today. Then Paul adds these words, Acts 26, verse 22, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike, great governors and kings. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, verse 23. And here it is, the gospel in a nutshell, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people, but also to the Gentiles. And Festus, the governor, he's heard enough. And so he says in verse 24, Paul, you're just out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. You've talked about visions and revelations, and now you're talking about resurrection. Resurrections, Festus has no category in his brain, in his heart, in his life for this type of teaching. So he concludes that Paul, who's obviously a well-educated man, he says, well, I guess he's just gone nuts. And the reality is, you know, because you talk to people. You share your story of Jesus, don't you? People don't understand the resurrection, do they? They don't get it. It's a miracle which baffles the mind. And so people conclude, you and I, we Christians, we're crazy, we're nuts. We're foolish for believing in something like this. It's why Paul said to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolish to them. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so Paul goes on and tells them 
Why is this surprising to you? And then he says, uh, verse 25 and 26, Acts 26, he says, this resurrection thing, it wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done in secret. It was done, and many saw it. In fact, you can even go and look and see. There's people who are still alive today who saw Jesus died, buried, and then alive again. You can even go talk to them if you want. And so after all that, Paul asked King Agrippa point blank, do you believe? It's the question for all of us. Do you believe? He says, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. You know what God's word says, so make the right decision. And Agrippa finds himself in a dilemma. He knows the Jewish scriptures extremely well. So he knows what Paul is talking about. But there's no way in the world right now he wants to connect the dots between what the scriptures say, that God will send a Messiah, a Savior. He doesn't want to connect those dots that that Messiah, a Savior that's going to be sent one day, that is Jesus. Because if he connects those dots and says the Messiah God promised is Jesus, then uh uh-oh, he's got to do something about it. Uh Uh-oh, he's got to make a decision for his future. And it's the same today with people. Because everybody is confronted with making a decision about Jesus and Christianity and faith. And as long as you keep Jesus as not the Messiah, the resurrected Savior, in fact, think about that. There's, there's religions. There's religion where billions of people believe that Jesus is a prophet. There's a false Christian religion that believes that Jesus is a brother to Satan. There's people who believe that uh, Jesus is a good person. But only those who follow the Scriptures believe that he's the one and only Son of God sent as the Savior to save the world. And that's, I hope, us. And Agrippa says what we say. Those who want to not pay attention and listen to the message that, okay, I'm good with Jesus, good person, prophet, I'm good with all that. But Savior, Messiah, I can't go there. And so he says in verse 28, you think in such a short time you're going to persuade me to become a Christian? Have you had that conversation with your friends? Like, come on, here's the truth. They're like, really? You think you're just, we're going to talk and all of a sudden I'm going to give my life to Jesus? You know what? Yes. Last night I watched the Harvest Crusade, Greg Laurie. Um, I've been to that a couple times myself, first time watching online. Uh, he's done it for 30, 40, 34 years. Six million people have come to the Harvest Crusades. 600,000 people have come and said yes to Jesus at those crusades. So yes, you can say yes today. And Jesus will save you and come into your life, forgive you of your sins. Yes, you can say yes today. That's God's great desire for everybody. What is your response to the gospel? Well, Paul went on and told them in part of his story, as he's telling Festus and Agrippa, Acts chapter 26, verse 14, he said, hey, when I was far from God and Jesus showed up and came into my life, he said to me, Jesus said to me, Paul, he said, hey, Paul, why, or Saul at the time, Saul, why are you, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. We talked about that a few weeks back. A goad is a stick that was used to drive an animal certain directions, pointed stick, and if you kicked against the stick, then that was your, you would only hurt yourself. In other words, You only hurt yourself when you refuse to fully surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. You're hurting yourself. 
Felix, Festus, Agrippa, they were kicking against the goads. They were only hurting themselves because they refused to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My question is, what about you? If you're a Christ follower, I imagine most of us in this room are. I hope and pray. It would be great if it was everybody. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the question is for you, are you hearing and receiving and responding God's word to God's word when it's convenient or are you always saying yes to Jesus? And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today's the day and we want to give you that opportunity. So let's pray. And as we pray, then we're going to lead us in a time of communion. We'll talk about how that relates to what we're talking about right here. So let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.